This is NEPM's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Meany with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at NEPM.org. The following interview with Max Roach took place on May 29, 1979 in Worcester, Massachusetts. Max was in the city to play a concert in a series presented by WCUW Community Radio. The station's concert series was fairly modest in scope, mostly solos and duos, and by this time had included concerts by the drummers Andrew Cyril and Milford Graves. In a meeting I had with Max at UMass Amherst, I broached the idea of a solo concert, which he embraced eagerly, notwithstanding my caveats about our small budget and 100-seat venue. Thus, arrangements were made for Max's concert on Memorial Day weekend, 1979. By that time, Max Roach had composed the drum also waltzes and numerous other pieces for solo percussion. He had also recorded two solo drum albums. But as it happened, this was the first solo concert of his career. The concert itself can be heard through the Jazz History Database, which is maintained by WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institutes. On the Jazz on the Mode blog, I provide you with a link to the Jazz History Database and a transcript of this interview. For yours truly, Tarmini, this came early in my radio career, and the interview with Max Roach was the first I'd ever conducted. Enjoy. Greetings, Max. Uh, hi, Tom. It's good to be here. And uh, You know, as we were driving into Worcester, you know, I was remarking to my son who drove me up here that uh, New England has really a very special quality about it, you know. That's, it's warm and friendly, and I guess that's because we've been living at, uh, in Massachusetts so long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, tonight is going to be a solo concert. Is, how do you, uh, there must be some special preparation you make for that kind of performance. Well, you know, it's, <clears throat> I just did a solo album which has been released exclusively in Japan, and um, you know, all these years, I guess I've been working up to the point where uh, my instrument, the percussion instrument, can be just the kit itself, the so-called jazz kit, which we call the multiple multiple percussion outfit, can be used uh, in the solo context and uh, sustain various feelings and moods and uh, uh, attitudes, you know, uh, light, heavy, or uh, contemplative, if you will, exciting, and all these elements. And in creating the, uh, the album, of course, I had dealt with all these things, the dynamics that go with a situation like that, and so that each piece will have its own musical personality. And uh, so I guess when you talk about preparation, I've been preparing for it all my life. <laughs> How do you um, feel about the solo setting for music? It's something we, music is something we usually hear in a group context. Yeah. I, I like it, you know, because when you look at um, this particular phase of American music that we call jazz, one of the outstanding um, qualities of it is the solo aspect, you know, and today when we hear, you know, I got a good explanation as to the style of music that developed out of 52nd Street from Count Basie at uh, the Charlie Parker uh, Foundation in Kansas City. We were on a panel discussion there. And, uh, you know, men like Mr. Basie and uh, the late Mr. Ellington, it was it was something to engage these folks in conversation because you got to a historical view of, of where the music came from and what it's about and where, in fact, it might go. And uh, he was describing the difference between the New Orleans style and the Kansas City style. The New Orleans style was more an orchestral style of music, which, which kind of directed itself into the East where Fletcher Henderson and Duke Ellington prevailed. And uh, the Kansas City style was, in fact, a solo style. You know, it was just orchestral interludes 
But basically, great soloists came out at Kansas City Mode, you know, like the Lester Youngs and, of course, Charlie Parker and Harry Sweets Edison and Ben Webster. All these folks came out of Kansas City. Mm. So <clears throat> it was a description of what we did on 52nd Street during the uh, 40s on to the 50s, you know, with Dizzy and Bud Powell and Bird and them. So the solo aspect is, um, is, is to me, a very, a very important part of uh, this area of American music, as I said earlier, you know, and uh, and of course, to the, we, we and, but the strange thing about it, it hasn't been, there hasn't been that much concentration on, say, uh, a solo performers per se. Like, I'd love to have heard a Lester Young solo performance, just mm -hmm. record, or Charlie Parker, you know, to, like we have the, uh, mostly, it was mostly done with pianists. They were the ones who did that of the day. But uh, I'm very happy that it's beginning to happen now. See, I'd, in fact, it's giving me an idea in some of the solos, some of the, uh, the learning attitudes that the students have developed at UMass, and the students uh, deserve the credit for this, is that they would take all the solos, say, of a John Coltrane out of the, out of the group context and string them together on tape and so they could, so they could study his methods and approach in depth, you know, which is almost similar to that. Uh, you have been associated with the University of Massachusetts for several years now, mm -hmm. and I believe you're conservatory trained yourself. You of course, know, there's a lot of training that came from other places. Yeah, I, I, I attended uh, Manhattan School of Music uh, at the same time, uh, right after the the Second World War when everybody was benefiting from the GI Bills and so forth. But there were some wonderful people at Manhattan during that period. John Lewis of the Modern Jazz Quartet, we were, we were classmates. Gunther Schuller was there, um, Joe Wilde, and later, of course, Donald Byrd and people like that came. But it was, it, 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 you know, <clears throat> then it was a good experience in learning a lot about traditional music, but actually the training that you you get uh, for what we did, the kind of music that we deal with, comes from you know your own uh, study of the masters that came out of the American musical experience. You know, uh, and actually, actually, I often tell about the story. You know, when I. I I, how I would help me to 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 pay my way through school was my working on 52nd Street, and um, of course I knew since I was a drummer and, and I felt that if when I wanted to take my audition it would be a snap for me just to come in as a percussion major, but I was criticized by the way I held the stick and the way I approached the percussion instruments and it made me change my major to uh, composition because I had also I also played a little piano. Which was uh, which was good for me, in a way because I I enjoyed theory and uh, and composition at, at the school. And most of the people there were we were there for for that actually you know for the uh, writing and composition skills so that we could take our ideas and transform them into you know so we could preserve our ideas <clears throat> uh, much more accurately. But anyway. <clears throat> So uh, uh, it taught me one thing that there, that you know, in in American music, jazz and and blues and country western and bluegrass and all these idioms, there are certain techniques that you have to use in order to get that particular sound out of it. For example, when you sing country western, you may have a great voice, but there are certain nuances that you really have to study in order so that you can be, say, okay, this is a bona fide country western singer. Well, and I'm with jazz is the same way. You know, I noticed that we, say, percussion instrument-wise, we play much closer to the instrument for one thing, and we adjust to the acoustics of smaller rooms and the, the uh, endurance and the speed that you have to have makes you adjust to another kind of approach and technique in dealing with the instrument. It's the same way with, uh, with all the other instruments. I know uh, 
Kenny Durham, God bless him, a dear, dear friend who came out of Texas, was studying at NYU, and he did similar, to, after I had gone through this experience at Manhattan, he had a similar experience because he experienced at NYU because he decided to uh, go for a music ed degree, and his major would be trumpet, because he was a trumpeter, one of the recognized trumpeters, trumpeters of the period. He had worked and recorded with Charlie Parker and many other people, and he had recorded a series of wonderful things under his own name. He was a fine composer and orchestrator who could deal with any combination and size of instruments, you know, large band, small group, whatever. So he was going to Manhattan, I mean to uh, NYU, and he said, uh, he called me up one day, and he was kind of, he was kind of soused and could hear it in his voice, and he said, you know that the trumpet teacher at, Man at NYU had flunked him at the music department. I said, well, what happened? He said that uh, I just didn't cut the mustard. So then I remembered my own experience, and I said, well, KD, what he's probably, KD we call him, Kenny Durham. I said, what he probably was judging you on was your ability to play in a European orchestral mode rather than in, in the mode that you have gained such a fine reputation in, you know? So actually, if he would to say to you, now uh, play some I Got Rhythm Changes or something like that or any things that you're responsible, that you can do well, then that area you have covered. But if you were to sit in an orchestral session and play just maybe some whole notes and half notes, the sound probably that you needed to in order to fulfill that particular uh, uh, musical uh, chore just was not the same. Not that it was inadequate, it was different. And so I began to explain to him that there are several, there are two techniques at least to approaching music. There are many, many techniques, of course, but in, in our country there isn't just one, it, it isn't just one dimension. If you're going to deal with the blues, there's a certain way you have to approach it. If you're going to deal with <clears throat> improvisational music in the jazz area, there's a certain way you have to pro approach it. If you want to be recognized as a country western singer, there's a certain way that you deal with it, even instrumentalists. So we, and all these techniques, unfortunately, are not taught in university, ses uh, 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 in, in university music schools or conservatories. And the reason I say unfortunately is because it comes out of the American experience. And sometimes I get kind of frustrated because we constantly teach a total, total European fair in the Germanic traditions it's almost unpatriotic in a sense, and we kind of throw aside all the wonderful things that are being developed musically here that we should uh, not only preserve but perpetuate and put them in larger forms or whatever kind of settings that we wish to as, as composers. Of course, some of our composers have done that, but I think it should be, uh, we should do more of that. Haven't you been uh, instrumental in getting a program in the music department at UMass that emphasizes African-American yeah, yeah. musical we, we, we do have a jazz music major there, and it was a struggle. It was a struggle. In fact, uh, it was, I shudder, you know, people were getting, lost their jobs, who were in sympathy with us, not indirectly, I would imagine, and it was just, it was a bloody mess because there were people in the music department who felt that if we did have a jazz major, which is really an area of American music, that um, it would it would uh, bring the the department down. It was sort of it was like you know blockbusting. You know, if we bring this music in, it's gonna it's gonna ruin the neighborhood. You know, it's that kind of attitude and mentality. You know, it was fear, and a lot of it was not unfounded because when you think seriously about a person who may have a doctoral degree in musicology and his, his area may be in 15th, 16th century music, and if he has to teach uh, this music that's contemporary today, he'd have a difficult time even though they are related. And of course, our major accommodates everything because if we're dealing with this music in the United States of America, we have to deal with all the things that America has. And America is not a, 
it's not in any way a homogeneous society, so we have to deal with all the different elements, which I think is very beautiful, you know. And out of that is, is you know, a lot of wonderful things are beginning to happen culturally. But, uh, you know, it was a struggle and it was a fight, and we finally do have a major there for anybody who's interested. And uh, uh, it's, we, we've come a long way with it, but we have a long, long way to go, so to speak. You've used uh, the term jazz several times in the conversation, yet it's one that I think you would rather stay away from. Uh, it's not a very accurate term for the music, nor uh, one that is really founded in the music itself. It comes from somewhere else, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the only reason is is uh, <clears throat> because many of our lay people who are not familiar with you know, we've all we're all conditioned to you know, and um, our likes and dislikes are sometimes um, shot into our very minds. You know, like drugs in a sense. You know, and we grew up with saying, "Well, we better not do this, or we better not do that." You know, and jazz has been a word that <clears throat> was associated with. Um, say, um, behavioral patterns that society frowns upon. Like, firstly, jazz was, uh, came out of, say, brothels, for example. And um, I used to always wonder myself why when I would read some of the history books, when that first concert at Aeolian Hall was done in 1924 by Paul Whiteman premiering the Gershwin uh, Rhapsody in, in Rhapsody in Blue, some of the critics had written that now Jazz has become an honest woman, meaning that she was a prostitute prior to that, okay? So, you know, all these kind of little things have led people to say, oh, you're a jazz musician? And uh, you say yes, and they kind of say, and all kinds of things come up, you know, uh, booze and whiskey and the 20s and the jazz age and promiscuity and all these kind of things that have, has nothing to do with all this great music that Mr. Ellington and people like that have given to the world out of his experiences in this country. And <clears throat> it's unfair for you to be labeled like I remember when I, when I was growing up and I, my whole my life, about 15, 16, was was this music, because I lived in New York City, would go to the Apollo on Saturdays after school and listen to these great bands, and was, so that was, that was for me. I knew that I was gonna be involved in this music. And I was, had fallen in love, at least at that age, called, with a young lady whose father was a minister, which was like the cream of the crop in our community, the minister's daughter. And when, you know, even though we were young and the father looked at me once and said, well, boy, what do you want to do with yourself when you uh, finish high school or you going to college or what? I said, so, you know, without even thinking twice about it, I said, I want to be a jazz musician, you know. And our relationship, <laughs> our relationship just, just fizzled right out to nothing. And I wondered why I was getting a cold shoulder. Till later on, I said, that must be it. That must be what it was, because he went, he never... I guess he said, no, that's not for my daughter, you know, even at that age, you know, running around with people like that. But and not only that, too, you know, we had a celebrated uh, case in this country, the Scottsboro Boys case, which was a group of young black men <clears throat> who were accused of raping a white woman in the Deep South. And it, was, it became a celebrated case, and a lawyer out of New York who became very famous Leibowitz was his name, because of this case, took this case because these kids were very poor, and they busted the case, and they were proven innocent. And one of the things that helped them, help uh, Leibowitz win this case, was a letter that she had written to a girlfriend of hers where she stated that those boys did not jazz her. You mm -hmm. see? Mm -hmm. Now this, all these things, you know, they, they bring up kind of connotation so then you know my you know although m people who are, who I deal with in the business like George Wayne who's the uh, mentor and the producer of the Newport Festival and Norman Grants we discuss this and debate these things I guess I'm the only one who will with it, who does with them because 
And they say, you know, Max, you can take something that originally was bad and make it into a good thing. And I have a great deal of respect for the, these two people because they have done some wonderful things with this particular area of American music. For example, Norman Grant has, has, has presented to the world on the concert stage. He literally did that, I guess you might say, single-handedly. And of course, uh, then along came George Wayne, who, uh, who, who even took it to other levels, if if you could say that. So, uh, but and and they uh, we debate about well, you know, okay, so we they've taken the word itself and turned it into something in other quarters of the world, of course, where if you are producing, you say go to Europe or Japan or Far East or someplace like that, and you say this is a jazz concert featuring people like the people that they deal with, of course like the Basies and the Ella Fitzgeralds and Oscar Petersons and the Cecil Taylors and all these folks as well, it's accepted on another level and it's introduced into the concert halls. Not that that makes it anymore, it just means that you can get more people in to see you and you can make more money, I guess, is really what everybody's concerned with, you know, especially people that get a survival. But and then on the other hand, it's the fact that it's, sort of come out of the smaller environs and clubs and things where where alcohol and things like that was the order of the day in order for you to, to function, which hasn't been bad either because when we look at Kansas City and how the music developed because of, uh, was it Pendergast? Yeah, yeah, Pendergast out there and how Kansas City was so wide open and it was controlled by all kinds of things and they needed music in these places and jazz was the music of the day and we, of course we got our Charlie Parkers and, and Lester Youngs from that, from that period and from that particular city during that time, which I think was, was good too. But, um, you know, as I reflect on it, Tom, you know, I'm, I, I used to, on a morals thing, deal with the word jazz in another way. But, you know, now I think that, you know, my energy and everything is going to, into other areas. For example, I'm really interested in in, um, in, in perhaps realizing and having people who, students especially who, are interested in, in the music that comes out of the American experience, understand that we should perhaps devote our time to the, all the institutions like the National Endowment on the Arts and all these people that are donating money to not forget American culture, <laughs> you know. I mean, the lion's share of the budget of the NEA goes toward a fair that does not come out of the American experience when we deal with music. And so, uh, you know, my thing now, of course, you always see everybody's always looking for something, I guess, something to do. But I feel as though that our tax dollars should be kind of divided so that the lion's share really goes to us uh, preserving and perpetuating what comes out of the American experience musically and not so much that we should neglect our, our huge orchestras and, uh, and, um, and, and pay more attention to American composers. I know that at UMass, when we had the, when we, um, when we, I guess, which celebrated the opening of our new fine arts center, which was paid by the taxpayers' monies of Massachusetts, beautiful facility, houses the music department, the uh, art department, school of dance, drama, so forth. Just a wonderful complex. You've been there. And uh, I know that the Boston Symphony Orchestra was, and it was during the bicentennial, which is something. <coughs> and, uh, and we got the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and I know that the music department had written to the orchestra asking Mr. Ozawa if they would play something because it was the bicentennial and because of the, we were celebrating the opening of our new fine art sound by an American composer, which I believe we have some great ones, and Duke Ellington is amongst them, for large orchestral settings. And uh, 
He said no, and his reasons for it was that they had already prepared their program for the season, and they would it would take too much time to prepare a piece now by an American composer, which was unpatriotic to us. So what we did, students and everybody, we got together and and um, petitioned and picketed the Fine Arts Council at UMass and insisted that during that period they did they would do something for American music, and we did. We gave a concert that featured Dizzy Gillespie, James Moody, Mary Lou Williams, and I heard that. Uh, Joe Jones and uh, Warren, I mean, and Brown Carter. And that was <clears throat> in answer to the fact that Ozawa uh, wouldn't deal with any American composers during the bicentennial, at least for, our, for the situation <coughs> we were involved in. Um, as a musician who has come out of the American experience, you have uh, incorporated some political overtones, shall we say, into your music as part of that experience. Mm -hmm. Right. You comment yeah. on that? Yeah. Well. Well, I guess as some of us, you know, most there's a the, you know, there's the premise that art is for the sake of art. And I am of the other persuasion. I believe that everything is political. I believe that even this new disco is, you know, coming out into the '60s. The young people were were talking and doing, and the poets, the young poets, the young musicians, and young artists, writers, and everybody were talking about political things that would affect their lives and their children's lives. You know, many things happen, you know, like during the civil rights movement, I remember when uh, I read something about Martin Luther King going down there to the jails, and he saw all these young people locked up, and he talked to a young girl, and he asked, and someone asked her, what was she doing there? I mean, why did she, you know, risk whatever it was in the Deep South in that kind of climate? And she said, well, I'm doing it now so that maybe my children won't have to do it. And maybe if my parents had done it, I wouldn't have to be here. And um, so wonderful things were happening during, during that 60s period. And when, we, when it came into the, to the uh, 70s, uh, we went into things were being, see, culture, culture is, is a beast, and it can, it, it can choreographify every thought and every movement. You know, it can be used to, to take you from one point of concert, uh, from, from one issue to another. <clears throat> and music, which now has gotten everybody dancing, and it's difficult to think while you're dancing, and the whole disco thing to me is a political move. You know, a lot of people may say, well, it's entertainment, this is what people want, it's what the record companies say, this is what people want, and so we're giving the people what they want. And this is, you know, uh, uh, we, we've had artists like uh, Joni James or someone, not, I'm just using this name figuratively uh, because I don't know whether she's done this or not, but say artists who sell a lot of records, for example, uh, and, the, and they have sold like mad during the rock period, but now that they've made a disco record, they're even selling more, and the company's making more money. And so I'm saying, well, you know, it has to be that, uh, to me it's a conspiracy because we travel all over the world. We, we do things in Europe, we do things in the Far East, we do things in the Middle East, and we were in Iran even before this, these, these things have happened at the Shiraz Festival. And there seems to be a concerted worldwide effort to capture the youth and put them into this whole disco dance situation with clothing and everything. And so no one has had a chance to sit down and really think about things anymore because you, everyone's too busy saying, let's get to the party, let's get to the party, let's get to the let's, you know. And uh, I was at Howard University, and they had an art show down there, and I know the curator. And I was in his office after viewing the show, which was a nice show, incidentally, made up students and faculty. And uh, we were in his office sitting, and he turned on the Howard University station, and uh, they had this disco thing going on the university station heavily, you know. So he got so incensed talking till he called up the station and said, can you folks think of anything else to play over there? 
there because nobody's dancing this time of the day, you know. And uh, I think that has a lot to do with it. This is, I guess, this is why politically, um, I think that you know there's there's room for entertainment, but there sh it shouldn't displace the fact that some people are interested in enlightenment, if it's at all possible. And that's you know I'm I'm you know I'm, I'm just, I might sound pretentious or, or whatever saying that, assuming that I can be someone who can enlighten somebody. But I believe there should be room for the quote unquote everybody's serious about what they do, but someone who says okay we can have things that we can have fun by, but there's also things that we can sit down and be contemplative as well by. You tell me something about the uh, history of the We Insist Freedom Now suite of yours? Yeah, well, yeah, we, we were, I, I met Oscar Brown Jr., <clears throat> who was introduced to me by very talented uh, Lady Abby Lincoln. We were married for a while there. But, uh, and uh, he and I would talk. He was a fine, piece, fine poet. And he and I got together and, and wrote one or two things. And then we got a commission from the NAACP youth organization to do something for the, I think it was the centennial. Yeah, it was the 100th year celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation, and that's and, and that was 1916. That's how we happened to, to to get involved in the Freedom Now Suite. Nat Hentoff heard us um, heard the performance, and we premiered it in Philadelphia. The second performance we did was at a benefit at the Village Gate for Art DeLugoff, and uh, Nat Hentoff was there, and he. And his only A&R job, I would imagine, he was with Candidate Records, asked us when we recorded, and that's how we happened to record the piece. Has that been released in the United States? Well, you know what has happened? Columbia Records, they have an archive series, and the producers, of course, are the president, Bruce Lundball, and Tom, and uh, Jim Fischel. And just, just what has just come out is the Brown Roach Live at the Beehive. Have you got that one? Live yes, at the yeah, okay. And also, they took two things, and also they're reissuing the Freedom Now Suite, which uh, reverted back to me when Candid was sold to CBS by Archie Blyer because CBS was had signed up and Candid artists who um, who became very, very big, very big. Uh, oh goodness. His wife was involved in in the murder of a ski. Andy, Andy Williams. Williams. Andy Williams. He was with them at that time. Early candid. And so in order for his records never to hit the street, I, the story goes, at a dollar ninety or dollar ninety eight, his deal with CBS was that they should take all of Candid. That's the mm -hmm. sale. And uh, the Freedom Now suit came back to me, but Columbia now has reissued it. And it will come out in their next archive series. From this uh, political dimension that you've given your music, do you feel that you've suffered some uh, consequences because of that? Well, yes and no. You know, when the Freedom Now Suite first came out, it was, you know, a controversial piece and of course it was recorded by a company here in the States but it's it, it got into South Africa as a jazz record and of course the album notes that Nat Hintoff had put on the back spoke politically to the events that were going on in South Africa during the 60s and that's when they had the Charlottesville massacre and all that stuff happened then although it's gotten worse lately because uh, in 1976 it was really something but um, if you could say worse, I can't say that either. But anyway, <clears throat> it got into South Africa as a jazz record until the authorities, the censors, realized that it was a record that criticized in a musical and poetic way from us, what Oscar Brown Jr. did with his poetry, what Nat did with his uh, album, the liner notes, Nat Hentoff did with the liner notes as a political album that says something not only about South Africa, but everywhere where man's inhumanity toward man is, exists. 
and uh, it was banned. And it hit the international press that it was banned, and it became one of the biggest sellers, <laughs> biggest record sellers. So that way, it worked in one way. Then next, and it became a classic as a result of that. Um, and so this is why Columbia can deal with it today and why it's, a, it's always a seller. And at one point, it was like gold. You, it's, it was taken off the market, and people were paying $50, $60 per album. And uh, so, uh, and then on the other hand, of course, I was asked to go in, and, and during the height of the 60s when the poets, and we were doing things with, with wonderful poets and at all our performances, and people were talking a healthy conversation about civil rights and, and Vietnam and so forth. And uh, I became almost a speaker at clubs. I'd, between some tunes, I'd talk about the daily events and what was going on here and there. And I'd be asked sometimes at some clubs, like at the Village Vanguard, bless Max Gordon, he would say, look, Max, I want you to come in the club, but I don't want you to make any speeches. He says, can you just, can you just come in and just play some music? You know, things like that would happen, which were, which were, but, um, all, all in all, I, you know, you, you take the bitter with the sweet. Some things are good, you know, and it's part of life. And some things didn't work out. We were criticized, you know, not only by people in the conservative area of, of the business, but we were also criticized by some of our peers, musicians, who would say sometimes, man, you know, Max, you know, music is music. And... Uh, make commercial music and, and make a lot of money. That's the name of the game. You know, it was that, you know, some of our own peers, you know, you, so, and you have to just kind of, if you believe in something, you just stay with it. And, uh, you know, I have no regrets of what happened, you know, during that period, because today, <clears throat> I'm happy that CBS is reissued, re-releasing the Freedom Now Suite, because it's still valid and it's still going on. And, uh, of course, when Archie and I did the duo album, and we did another piece called uh, South Africa 76 because of all the activity that was happening during, down there during that period. Not that it's not happening any other places in the world, but uh, it won the Grand Prix International Do Disc Prize for, for uh, modern jazz in France, which is a coveted award only because, you know, when I went to the to receive the awards for both Archie and myself. Uh, it was something to see this group of men and women on the stage with black gowns and beards and all that, awarding to not only just to jazz, but to every area of music that you put out. And, and also, not just uh, European and American music, but also music that came, there were wars for the best recordings that were made from the African traditional and the Near Eastern and the Middle Eastern and the Far Eastern. It was really a big, big thing, and it was, it was nice just to see that and be a part of that. And it's the second one that I, I've won. The first one was done with the Gene Norman Presents Clifford Brown, Max, Max Roach with Clifford Brown. That was the first one we won. That was in 1954, I believe. 53 or 54 was the first one. So this is the second one that, that, that I've had the, the pleasure and, uh, and honor of receiving from that group. You've worked um, in the 1950s with Clifford Brown and then in the early 60s with Booker Little, two mm -hmm. fine trumpet players right. who died at young Very ages. Young. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? Well, it was... The death of both of those young people affected me because, firstly, they were young and then extremely talented and hardworking young folks, you know. And uh, Booker, of course, from uh, blood disease, and Clifford in a tragic accident. But, you know, f fate is something. I was introduced, you know, when we were in Chicago, this new album that comes, that came out with, uh, that CBS has just put out, that kids comes out of, uh, out of, uh, you know, we collect tapes of ourselves, and that was the only thing that I had that was very personal between, that I had of Brownie and all of us, 
that had never been released. And when people would come by my house, musicians or people who were really interested in the music, I'd kind of pull this old tape out and put it on. I didn't play it that much myself so they could hear something unusual. And I know that Jimmy Owens and all the trumpet players would, and Charles Tolliver and Dizzy and them would say, man, that should be out so that people could hear it. And finally, uh, it's out, okay? <laughs> you know, I just kind of, you know, it was selfish when you come to think of it because people like Brownie and them belong to us all, you know? And, uh, but during this, that session, that particular session, Harold Land had to go to California. He was the original member of that group because he was having problems at home. I think his mother may have been ill or something like that. So he said, listen, I'm going to have to take some time out and go back home. And Sonny Rollins was staying at the YMCA in Chicago. And so we, so Clifford and I said, well, if Sonny's in Chicago here, why don't we go ask him to temporarily play with us until Harold comes back? And uh, okay, we went to the Y and spoke to Sonny, and Sonny was downstairs in the rehearsal room of the YMCA in South Chicago, rehearsing with a young trumpet player, and his name was Booker Little. And so we were introduced to Booker by Sonny Rollins. I had no idea that we'd ever work together. He was very young, out of Memphis, Tennessee. Show you how fate works things out, you know. So anyway, Sonny joined us, and then the tragic accident and everything, and then. Uh, Donald Byrd and then Kenny Durham, and then I thought of this young trumpet player who was introduced to us by Sonny, introduced to Brownie and I by Sonny Rollins. And uh, that's how I happened to deal with, with Booker. Then when, and then when the thing happened with Booker, it just tore me apart because I said, well, these two young, brilliant people who were bringing something that was highly individual, I thought, and vital to the music you know, were taken, snuffed away, but they did, what they did while they were here was profound, really profound. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Booker, too, because uh, he, I think a lot of times people go unnoticed who've made contributions. You know, another one is a pianist, Hassan, who I, I had uh, <clears throat> kind of introduced so to Atlantic Records. And he made one album, and that was it. And I hear queries about him all over the world. What happened to her son? Well, he is, he's had a stroke. And uh, he's a good friend. He grew up with Odine Pope, the tennis saxophone player, with us now in Philadelphia. And he was one of the leading innovators there, like <clears throat> with John Coltrane and that group that came out of Philadelphia. And, you know, some people are natural eccentrics. Monk is one. Sonny Rollins kind of is on the borderline, and Hassan is one. And Hassan used to come out, come from Philadelphia, and come to my place when we, when I lived in Manhattan, and I had a s small studio in there with a piano in it, and would late in the morning if he stayed up too late, uh, hung out in New York at four or five o'clock in the morning, he'd ring my doorbell, and I'd let him in, sleepily let him in, and go back to bed, and he'd rush into the studio and play the piano all morning. And I've taped some of these solo piano efforts of his that I've got that's kind of in the same as kind of a private little little uh, archive myself of his. And, I, and I'm thinking, I've been thinking, you know, especially since he's had that stroke, it would be nice if a record company became interested and just took some of this. It's just magnificent piano playing, you know, just all by himself in a room. and I turn the tape recorder on and go back, st stumble back in the bed, you know. But he's also another one of those people. Well, by the time his album was released on Atlantic, he was already referred to as the legendary Hassan. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's almost prophetic. Yeah. They knew it because uh, <clears throat> when um, I introduced him to Nessui Erdogan, who was then doing some a and r before he became uh, uh, of the overseas for Atlantic Records. When I introduced him to Nessie, Nessie said, listen, we'll do an album with him if you, if you are responsible for his trio. And that's how it became the Max Rose trio with the legendary Hassan. Because all the music was his and, you know, it was really his record date. Mm -hmm. But I got the responsibility of taking him into the studio, getting there, seeing that he does the date and this and that and the other. Because they were, he was unpredictable. They loved what he did. Nestle recognized it because he was like Herbie Nichols in a sense, who was a different kind of personality, very quiet, 
subdued, orderly person Herbie was, his, her son was like, ah, you know, when you saw him. But uh, create, creatively speaking, they, they some, you know, some wonderful folks. How about uh, Charlie Parker and Bud Powell, who you created something of a revolution with in the 40s? Yeah, that's a... Uh, you know, one of the things about this music that comes to my mind is that it freed the musician. The solo thing, you know, it gave, heretofore the musicians usually sat in an orchestra and the two dominant forces in the, in the responsible for the for the music itself and the feelings and everything else were the conductor and the composer. It was almost imperialistic in a sense. And then along came this music where the guy who sat in the orchestra, according to his skills harmonically and, and of course his command of his instrument, he had an opportunity to participate in, in the, the composing on an on a uh, improvisational and purely almost on the spur of the moment of creating a piece of music that would have the it takes a great deal of skill to do this to that would have a lasting effect on the world of music you know and make uh, make historical in, inroads into creative musical thinking as far as we in the United States are concerned. And of course, Charlie Parker was one of these folks, and he's looked at all all over the world. You go today, he's like um, he's like, almost like a saint, you know. You go to, when he died. I remember there was a a young Japanese pianist who committed suicide. You know. Now that's in the sense of their religion and their culture, which wasn't really suicide to them, because it was it was odd to us. But I guess he felt that he was he was he was going with Charlie Parker, and uh, and of course, uh, all over the world, you know, he was he still is a source of uh, he's like the sun, you know. People feed off off his ideas and his musical thoughts and his music still sounds as fresh as ever. You know, I was listening the other day to the Hootie Blues and all the stuff he did with Jay McShann and it was a smile. When he first was introduced to us in New York, it was through Jay McShann and it was like the shot that rang around the world, you know, because we heard that 12 bars he played in Hootie Blues. We heard that and everybody just went out. You know, it was just a new day all of a sudden. So naturally when he came to New York, and uh, Dizzy was is really deserves a lot of credit for being the kind of a catalyst that that kind of put everybody together. He was with Cab Calloway, so he did a lot of traveling. We were all very young, you know, and he would hear us at mittens or at jam sessions, and he'd say, you know, when I start my band, I would like for you to be in my band. He would tell me, or Bud Powell, kids around New York. And he says, you know, there's a bass player in Oklahoma who plays with his family's band by the name of Oscar Pettiford, plays with the Pettiford band. He said, you have to hear this man, this, this young fellow. So we now we had a new name, Oscar Pettiford. Then he brought in, of course, we had heard Charlie Parker on record. And he said, we're going to get Charlie Parker in New York. So his dream band was the band that was at Massey Hall, all except Charlie Mingus, because Oscar Pettiford, who was working with Woody Herman, they used to have softball games between the big bands. And Oscar was in a softball game with Woody Herman's man, with some other band, and he broke his arm. That's why he didn't do the Massey Hall bit, and Mingus did it, which was good, because Mingus had the idea of recording the piece, and so we have it. And uh, <clears throat> fate works in such strange ways, but, uh, but that was Dizzy's idea of what his band would be. He had uh, Charlie Parker and uh, Bud Powell, and Oscar Pettiford and myself, and of course Dizzy. But we never had a chance to play together as a unit 
And the closest we got to it was Massey Hall. You see, because we are the Bud Powell Trio, Charlie Parker's groups, Dizzy Gillespie's things. But so that was the only instance that that particular group worked together on 52nd Street. Mrs. Powell, Bud Powell's mother, since Bud was young, she was, of course, Bud had been in that accident in Philadelphia, but she was reluctant about having Bud deal with us on 52nd Street. So Bud, so George Wallington was the pianist of note during that period. And later on, of course, came uh, Al Haig and Duke Jordan. So when we did finally get together, it was way, it was, it was in 1954, I believe it was at Nancy Hall. But Charlie Parker surely was, uh, was the, was the, he still is, the figure, you know, when you deal with it. Because when you listen to John Coltrane and everybody else, they come out of Charlie Parker. When you listen to Charlie Parker, you hear some Lester Young. You hear that Kansas City thing, you know. But uh, he was a man who had a great sense of humor. And uh, he was a poet. And his poetry was 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 blue. It was colored. You know, I'd like to say some of the things that, you know, descriptions of things were really very beautiful, but they were really very colored. You know, you know, they had that blue tinge to it, and he had a, and he was a. That's one thing he maintained. I think that really jolly, jolly sense of humor that he had that I loved, and and he also had. He always left you wanting more when he played. I know we'd be sitting, we'd be on the bandstand, and he'd play his courses. I can tell you one story that he, a lesson that Brownie told me that he learned from him, give you some idea of the type of person he was. Brownie, <clears throat> after that first small group, uh, we all kind of dispersed, and we were all trying to get our own groups, Miles, and whom he loved very, very much, and me, and. Um, several stories give you some idea. Um, we were in Indianapolis and it was just a quintet and we were packing them in, you know, huge armories in every place. Charlie Parker was popular. So Miles and I, we roomed together in um, pianist and the bassist room together, you know, in those days. So uh, Miles was telling me, you know, Miles had just come to New York from St. Louis and he had two children, I believe, at that time, and he was kind of in and out of Juilliard as well. So he was saying, Bird was paying us $25 a night. So Miles said, you know, Max, I gotta have more money, so I'm gonna ask Bird for a raise since he loves you and he loves me because we'd be on a record date and Norman Grants would be in the studio and, and he'd tell Norman to give us more than what the union minimum was and say, don't you know that's Miles Davis and Max Roach? You know, he'd say things with that heavy voice he had. And so this particular instance, Miles went in to ask him for, uh, see, we approached him that night after the, the job was over. We went to his room in the hotel. He was sitting in his, in his bed like King Midas counting the money. It probably wasn't a lot of money. So his door was open, so we just, it was a job, so we just kind of walked in, he chastised us for not knocking, asked us what we wanted, and Miles said, Bird, I gotta have more money. And uh, he did finally, after a little argument and, you know, much trepidation and, and stuff on our part, he said, okay, I'm gonna give you and Miles, uh, I'm gonna give you and Max $10 a piece more, $35 a night, but don't tell Tommy Potter and, our, and Al Haig about it. You know, that's one, one attitude. I guess that another thing that uh, Brownie told me about him was when, after that group had broken up and we were all kind of doing singles, he worked in Philadelphia and Brownie had a chance to work with him. You know, he'd go out as a single and in the town and get musicians to work with him. Brownie said the first time he worked with him, he was so excited that whenever Charlie Parker would play, he would start exclaiming on the bandstand, Blowbird, Blowbird, you know, like that. Wow, woo, you know. And he didn't realize it was annoying Bird until Bird, so when he started playing his solo, he said Bird put his mouth very close to his ear and said, blow, 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 until he couldn't play. Very softly, you know, just, 
He used he used he used much more uh, demonstrative language, but that was the attitude, you know. And uh, he was some kind of person, actually, person that you. And he taught people. I know that uh, when he died. Of course, I didn't go to his funeral. I don't know whether Miles did or not. We were on the road then because during that period, of course, Brownie and I were together and we were traveling all over the place. But I saw Miles <clears throat> shortly after his funeral. And, you know, he used to put us through something. Every night, the first piece that he would play would be the fastest thing we'd play at night. I mean, it was torrid. Well, that was his way of warming up. You know, sometimes it would be the first show in these clubs where we did four or five shows a night. So the early show was like uh, not too many people there. People were, and he would just woo, and I mean, we would be sweating and puffing and just everything. And the rest of the evening, of course, would be groovy because he's got all his kinks out. I mean, it would be a strenuous piece, that first piece, the opener. And... Uh, of course, you know, we would huff and puff, and when the group broke up, we never really, I never myself felt that I really did the job right for that first piece. And I guess Miles never felt, he felt the same thing, because shortly after he died, I surrendered to Miles, and Miles, with that cryptic sense of humor, he said, you know, Max, he died before we could get even with him. <laughs> <laughs> He's also also a very wonderful man, Miles Davis. You know. There's been uh, it's been a very illustrious career for you. Have there been any has there been a high point in it? Or? Well <clears throat> you know, I've I've just been kinda of, and this been is blessed because when I was 16, I had a chance to work with Duke Ellington. I was still in Boys High School, Brooklyn, and it was the beginning of the war when we first got into the war, and all the musicians were either in the service or what have you. And when Mr. Ellington's drummer, who was Sonny Greer, had, had taken sick, I had a man who had been listening to me was Clark Monroe, Billy Holiday's brother-in-law who was the guy who put like Bud and all of us in the union, paid us, paid, gave us that initial fee so we could work at his club in Harlem and uh, for $12 a week. <laughs> <laughs> it was an after hours place and we would work there from like four to seven and rush out and go to school the next day. But it gave us so much experience, you know, because all the greats would come down to jam with us during that, when they got off their jobs. But uh, he and I can, so you had to play shows and everything, so I could read music. And so I started out, I got that particular chance to play because I could read a show and all the other things, which is kind of funny too. But then, and then from then on, you know, it, it confirmed in my mind that I was really going to be involved in this business, in this area of our American music that we call jazz, really, you know. So I was determined then to learn as much as I possibly could from not only people like the Joe Joneses, you know, Jonathan Samuel, David Jones, and the Chick Webbs, and all the great drummers, but also the people who harmonically, Benny Carter was such a great teacher to J.J. Johnson and I both as far as orchestrations or con orchestration is concerned, all these things, but, <clears throat> and from then on, you know, my career, I just ran into just great and wonderful people, and I'm still doing that, you know, I think that, uh, on up to Clifford and Booker and Eric Dolphy and Sonny Rollins and Billy Harper and Cecil Bridgewater and Stanley K. It's just, just been, you know, it's always, it's always good, but I look forward to uh, a lot of the young people and working with a lot of the people who I haven't had an opportunity to do, even tomorrow in a sense, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, like in Newport this year, we're doing something with the, the gospel singers as well as the cathedral singers at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which is the second largest cathedral in the world next to St. Peter's, which, you know, it's the same place that Ellington's funeral was, which is going to be a great moment for me, fusing the ideas of gospel jazz as well as, as uh, trained singers into uh, a... Um, 
a compatible musical relationship. And also on that concert, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Maxine Roche, will be doing a solo on her viola. She's an exceptionally gifted and fine musician, so I'm looking forward to a lot of things tomorrow and on down the line. In other words, Tom, I guess you might say I'm, um, I'm blessed, <laughs> you know, having been born at the time and, and living in, 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 in the kind of society with all its shortcomings that does allow you a chance to speak out and be if you put the time in to deal with it, deal with your life and relationship to the society. Thanks very much, Max. Yeah, it's my pleasure.